Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, the Piggate allegations. The Daily Mail has serialised a new unauthorised biography of the Prime Minister, but should the paper have printed the claims when they were based on a single source? Privatising Channel 4. An official has been photographed carrying confidential documents showing the government is actively considering a sell-off. Is this the right move for the channel? And the bottom half of the internet. Some news websites are turning off online comments saying they are too expensive to moderate. Is this the beginning of the end for article comments? And joining us as ever, two of the media's best and brightest, Rachel Oldroyd is Managing Editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and Aidan Radnedge is Chief Reporter at Metro. Media Focus. So first up, Lord Ashcroft and Isabel Oakeshott have defended allegations about David Cameron containing their new unauthorised biography. One of the most salacious claims was that the Prime Minister took part in a university club initiation ceremony involving an act with a dead pig, which the PM has since denied. Critics say the media gave undue prominence to the salacious details, and given it was based on just a single source, that it was irresponsible for the media to have made this their focus. Just before we discuss this, I should declare that I know Isabel Oakeshott and have worked with her on a number of projects. I regard her as a friend, and I employ her husband from time to time with PR work, but I have had no involvement at all with this book. Rachel, would you have printed the story? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's a very difficult one to answer because I think, as we saw last week, that any editor who didn't publish the story was almost committing suicide because that was the topic that got hold of social media. It was the topic that everyone in, you know, I work in an investigative journalist newsroom. We have 10 investigative journalists there and all anyone spoke about all day was Piggate. As an editor, you would have been one wise not to publish it, but it did bring up huge questions and huge problems about the media, I think. Um, one is single-source journalism, which time and time again has proved to be problematic. It was written into a book, and Isabel Oakeshott and Michael Ashcroft have defended it in their own way by saying, well, we were writing a book, we didn't um, at any point say it was true, we provided the reader with a situation and it was up to the reader to respond. But why did they publish it in the book? They published it because they knew it would have the sort of response it got. So it is a bit of a vicious circle there. Um, I think there is another issue about journalism and about how the media wants our politicians to be these days. We want our politicians to be whiter than white and we expect them not to have pasts. And it doesn't make any difference, even were it true, and I'm not even sure we can say whether it's true or not, even if it was true, does it make any difference to our view and, and feeling about David Cameron as a leader? I'm not sure it is particularly relevant to him as prime minister it was something that happened a long time ago he was a uh, a very young man at university who hasn't done stupid things in their past it wasn't illegal um it wasn't cruel it wasn't nasty it was a silly act if if it happened I think this focus, and there is a lot of focus at the moment on um, our politicians being these absolutely perfect people and being perfect people all their lives, is putting an awful huge amount upon our politicians' shoulders and upon our policy decision makers' shoulders. And, you know, we've seen the same thing going on with um, um, the Labour Party as well. And, um, you know, a lot of allegations and a lot of talk about the, the, the current new leadership of, of the Labour Party. I think that is a much bigger issue that needs to be addressed just or more than just um, whether this one little story should have been published or not.
I mean, do you think it puts off people that are actively considering entering politics? Because like you say, who hasn't had a, a private life and done things that, you know, they're embarrassed about from time to time? I mean, are, are we actually setting the bar too high that no politician dare ever think aloud, lest it be seen as a gaffe? Uh, you know, try something, lest they fail, have a private life in the past, lest it be exposed when they're further down the line. In a sense, the, the media are their own worst enemy here, because we're going to have no politicians left to... Uh, well, we're not going to have any good politicians. We're going to have career politicians. And I think that is the problem. We're going to have people who from the age of 18 decide they want to be a politician. So they follow a certain path through university into politics and into parliament. And therefore they don't have a life, they haven't led a life outside um, the towers of, of Westminster. And I think that is a problem. And I think that's why Jeremy Corbyn is so refreshing because he is taking conversation from grassroots level and he's connecting with people and he's bringing in a debate into the House of Commons that hasn't been there for some time because we've got so many career politicians and I think as you say jumping on the bandwagon and jumping upon somebody's past constantly an ancient past you know this is this happened half David Cameron's life ago you know he's a changed man he's whatever he is now but that is very much part of his past it, it wasn't he wasn't even part of politics at that point in time so, yes, I think it is making the burden to being a politician incredibly high and incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, we, we saw people who were going to stand for the Labour leadership candidate, who, who candidates who pulled out because they were concerned about um, their social path. So we, we are um, creating a very, very high bar that is going to get increasingly impossible. I mean, Eden, the public seem to like earthy politicians that have had a life that connect with people and that seem real. You know, I'm thinking of Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, etc. Do you think that this is something that where the public are trying to give the media the message that they actually consider it a badge of honour sometimes that they've, they've had a few ups and downs in their lives? The media writing um, stories about politicians' hinterland doesn't necessarily have to be a very judgmental or condemnatory one. Uh, I mean, there, there were discussions in the Labour leadership campaign about a series of human interest interviews that, that, that were done with each of the candidates and, and each of them could come across very personably and, and were willing to, to, uh, to talk about their interests or, the, or their life outside politics as well because if you are willing to put yourself forward as a re representative of, of, of the public then I, I think there is a, at the very least a tacit acceptance that your personal history maybe shouldn't predominate, but at least plays a part in how you introduce yourself, how you represent yourself to, to the public. In the past, David Cameron hasn't uh, refused to comment that, that much on that at all, rather than, rather a, than a denying. Yes, yes, so, I mean, he, he's kept a fairly neutral stance, as he has done this week, I'm sure, his aides last Sunday night, when the, when the front page of the Daily Mail first started getting gleefully shared by people on Twitter must have been thinking, how do we respond to this? It, it's easy to condemn people for instances, but on, on the overall balance, I think people don't necessarily care that much about a long distance uh, act so long as they, you know. Not in politics, reason. absolutely. Yes, yeah, yes. What, do, what do you say to, to Rachel's point that she mentioned about the single source? I mean, because you, you were in the newsroom, it, it would be strange to not cover it given there's a huge furore. But on the other hand, in a sense, by covering it, you're giving it oxygen and you're giving it legitimacy. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Well, I think it was interesting to see that on that Sunday night, the Monday, social media was ablaze with this. I mean, the Daily Mail, even though they had this popular 
story, yeah. as it were, a popular in, in, in uh, to, to, to either side of the debate, or what a former editor of mine would, would call a talker. But they actually didn't bury it because they included it in their front page, but it was, what, the fifth or sixth paragraph of their main story, which was Lord Ashcroft, former Tory donor, is bringing out a book full of very pointed accusations against the Prime Minister. It was only on the Tuesday, say, that every other newspaper felt either compelled or permitted to go in on this as not just the allegation against David Cameron, but also a story about the furore, as it were. By that point, I think, that was when a much wider public would become aware of aware of what was being said, you know, a very strange, and I would say dubious, you know, a, a scurrilous, uh, perhaps spurious story based on one source. Some people have raised eyebrows about it being one anonymous source. Anon- one anonymous. An- anonymity doesn't necessarily, often anonymous sources are the most useful and worthwhile, but mm. it was, the fact it was covered by the cloak of being in a book and, of course, protected by, potentially by Lord Ashcroft's Bottomless resources, yes. Then that I think the question isn't whether the the media were, say, wrong to share it and say the Daily Mail had serialised this book now. Two weeks later, the book comes out. Some eagle-eyed reader finds this detail that the Daily Mail hasn't and included it would have come in out anyway. serialisation. Then that would have... Uh, I mean, we saw last week there was a Twitter storm which then provoked several newspaper stories about um, online reaction to a couple of paragraphs in Gary Barlow's autobiography, which came out several years ago, but it just so happened someone had found it in a charity shop, homed in on, on, on one page, shared it online, and it had developed a new life of its own there. So there were also far, you know, other intriguing elements to political uh, observers in, in the mail serialisation over the course of last week many might say, more worthily serious about public conduct in terms of Cameron's apparent alleged knowledge before he'd said so publicly about Lord Ashcroft's non-dom status or the criticisms by defence chiefs about the, the, uh, the pursuing of military action in Syria or, as it turned out, not in Syria. I mean, Rachel, do you think that Aidan has a point there, that in a sense that this has actually pulled focus away from some of the more very serious allegations contained in the book that are certainly less salacious and worthy of intellectual discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think far from damaging Cameron, I think this has just been a storm in the teacup, really. And the thing we will remember about this book is is Piggate and everyone will laugh it off it won't have any impact on him and there were some quite serious allegations in the book and I think that is the problem um, a, a, a concern that a lot of our media stories are being driven by social media these days and it is what is trending on Twitter or what is the story that's getting picked up in the wider social media that can drive the news agenda at times is a bit sheep as well. It's a bit situation of, you know, everybody follows everybody else. Everyone follows the herd. So, you know, no one wants to be left behind. No one wants to miss the story. So if there is a lot of chat on social media about a specific topic, then that will get picked up. And that, that is a story that will often float high. Um, and I do think it is a shame. I mean, um, Nicola Sturgeon tried to make the point early last week that let's forget the pig. Let's look at the, the serious allegations 
in in the book, and that was made in the 10 o'clock news. But actually, those are the things that nobody will really will remember or debate. Do you think the BBC tried to be quite even-handed about this insofar as they said that there were salacious allegations involving the Prime Minister's university days, but they didn't actually say, you know, what he was alleged to have done with a pig, um, because that would have pulled focus? Do you think that that was actually the sensible way to do it, to, to mention that there was this furore, but not actually going to the specifics? That is probably a much better way of reporting it. Uh, by that stage, most people would have known what the story was. The Even if they didn't, they could quickly we go and have a look on the internet and find out in two seconds what the story was in case they were buried in some bunker somewhere for the day. I'm not, I'm not sure it was massively well reported on the BBC, to be honest, because it was, it was a bit more reporting about the whole media sensation as opposed to what are the real issues here? Is there something worthy of debate in this book? And should we be looking at the real issues? I'm not sure that even the BBC brought those out. From memory, I think the Guardian front page um, the next day tried to do a bit of that. But again, it, it was a, it was a little bit more about the was it right to publish the story based only on one source? And actually, it was only one source who'd only seen a photograph of this. It wasn't even a source who'd been in the room at the time. Um, you know, it is quite a spurious reporting of a story. Ed, and do you think the media, the traditional media, are too reliant on social media now in terms of their, their, you know, whether it's representative of what people are really thinking? I'll give you an example. We had Linton Crosby in this studio last week. We interviewed him for the Media Masters podcast, and one of the things that he said was very strong about his insight was that he didn't go on social media because it's just it just tells him what people on Twitter think, whereas real people might think that, but they also might not. So you've got to get out into the real world to find out. Do you think we're too obsessed with social media? I often feel that very much is the case, particularly with newspaper websites. I mean, we are very used in you know to 24-hour news now, Twitter updating all the time. I mean, often it's very useful as a journalistic tool. It, it's faster than a newswire a lot of the time. But it does involve, one, a lot of uh, unverified, a, a massive information because it's potentially almost limitless but also potentially manipulable by some people. And also, yes, it can act as a very um, buzzwords of now, an echo chamber, because you can almost miss the woods for individual trees, particularly if, if, uh, if you are writing stories and you now are happy to rely on three people said on Twitter, and that, that becomes, say, a backlash against something on the BBC or, 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 or something in the government. I mean, it, it does seem... a Easy, of course, irresistible uh, way to fashion a story almost out of nothing and then get lots of shares or clicks, you know, in, in, in terms of your, your uh, ongoing constantly updating daily. It seems to traffic. suit it seems to suit kind of rolling news because like when people die, for example, you know, the anchor just tends to read out the tweets of people who are just reacting and and everyone's tribute now seems to be 140 characters or fewer. That's just my opinion. Rachel, just finally on this then, you know, you, um, as an investigative journalist, do you find Twitter useful for building relationships, publicising your work, um, finding out information? Is Is it more of a help than a hindrance? I think Twitter has almost revolutionised um, journalism today. And I think, we've, I think we've been a bit unfair on the media and journalists to suggest that um, Twitter is our go-to source. It really is not our go-to source. I think um, Twitter is another means of information. And the power of Twitter is it, it's, its immediacy. So um, as you say, 
in terms of rolling news or breaking news, it is a very, very powerful source because you're getting people on the ground. You know, it was it was incredibly powerful. Actually, it wasn't it, it wasn't Twitter. It was um, BlackBerry, but it was incredibly powerful during the London riots. The BBM. Um, yeah, and and that that told the story. People found out what was going on at that time because of um, BlackBerry Instant Messenger. And Twitter acts the same. In Nepal, a lot of the immediate reports we got came through social media. But, you know, all journalists are trained. All media organisations are professional organisations. They use Twitter as another tool. And it is an incredibly important, powerful tool. And it's not just Twitter, it's social media as a whole. You know, Instagram is increasingly important. YouTube is important. All these new tools that allow us to report on things that are happening on the ground without actually having to have a journalist in that specific place at a time. It allows us to reach out to sources almost immediately. But that's what it is. It's a means to another source. And as an investigative journalist, that's we use Twitter a lot to find people who are talking about a specific subject and to get to a source or to get to somebody who can comment on it who's on the ground is a much easier way of getting to those type of people. And in, in that sense, it has changed and revolutionised journalism. But, you know, we don't write a story just because it has appeared on, on Twitter. And I think, you know, it would be wrong to assume that that's how, how the media works. So next up, an official has been photographed carrying sensitive documents which reveal the government is exploring privatisation options for Channel 4, which would knock about a billion pounds off the government deficit. Labour and Channel 4 figures expressed concerns about the proposal, saying the broadcaster currently reinvests all of its profits back into programmes and that this would be impossible after privatisation, thus jeopardising the quality of its content. Aidan, do you think these privatisation plans threaten the channel's output? Well, I think for a start, it could be said that the word plans should maybe carry quote marks because yes. I think that there may be proposals or or at the very least this could be um, government asking for a hypothetical study as often gets carried yeah, out into, into, into many many options that, that, that wouldn't get pursued obviously it could be seen to be in people's interests on both sides of the argument to get this debate out there to fly this kite at the very least or within within government to to be um, pushing forward with at the very least as they they have since said reform considerations you wonder why ministers walk down downing street toward downing street well, with often, files open often, now, given how powerful lenses are well actually i i often feel dubious about just how accidental some of these uh uh-huh. these are in in terms of um obviously sometimes they they clearly are and backfire as in the case of scotland yards anti-terror mm. bob quick but i think sometimes it it, it might not be rude that much that uh, by, by ministers or officials that, that this has been spotted and, and gets the, the debate going. I mean, the Financial Times followed that up with a, a, a piece clearly briefed by, but, but including soundings from uh, people on the Channel 4 side who, who, who were, uh, you know, already clearly starting to um, circle the wagons in, in terms of a, um, a fight back against this. The, the idea of say, privatising, or, or as Labour have put it, a fire sale of, of Channel 4, um, would would raise concerns. It, it would be dispiriting to potentially lose any oversight or control that, that, that the public sector currently has over Channel 4's very distinctive remit, which has been set in down in detail over the years to provide um, an alternative viewpoint, uh, you know, very much a, 
an outlet which some, offers something different to, to the other mainstream channels. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that at least a study of potential reforms is necessarily an evil, just uh, everything must go kind of sell-off. I mean, Channel 4 does operate not just Channel 4, but several spin-off channels, E4, More 4. So, and, and Luke Duncan, the, the former chairman, has been among those who, who has been a little more openly receptive to at least considering where it stands, particularly in this ever-changing multi-channel sphere we have, particularly where overseas companies such as Netflix are, or Amazon even, are putting some hefty money behind programming as well. Rachel, I mean, Channel 4 at the moment is commercial but not for profit. Its profits are ploughed back into programmes. The government's short of money, it would be an easy billion. In a sense, you can't blame them for exploring options. It would just change them back into a commercial for-profit company. I think that's the problem. I think, you know, it's the debate about whether to privatise Channel 4 sort of focuses on the fact that it is a commercial channel. Well, it is a commercial channel. It makes its revenue from advertising. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that. But the reason why it is so different from ITV is because it's a not-for-profit. Um, so every single penny is ploughed back into the organisation and the vast majority of that is ploughed back into programming. So um, I think in 2014, the figure was they spent $600 million on actual programme making. If you sell it off into... Um, if you privatise it, if you sell it off... Who do you sell it to? I think that's quite a key question. Which organisation is going to come forward and buy it? If it is a commercial organisation, it will be about profits. Uh, you cannot, you just, the, the, the maths just does not work. You cannot have the same amount of money to make programmes if you're trying to ensure that some of that money ends up in your shareholders' pockets. It is. I think it is a, a very troubling uh, way forward. I I do think that there should be a debate, and I think that that's that we've we've gone into a polarised position now. Um, I really wish ministers would learn to keep their um, notes in a red briefcase and not to carry them around um, where a camera lens um, can actually take a snapshot of it. And I do think it is. You know, I, I agree with Aidan. I think some of it probably is intended. It is a way of getting conversations out there into debate but it's that, really that really genuinely never crossed my mind so i'm feeling quite naive <laughs> at the moment if i'm honest <laughs> but i think if that is if that was the intention here it was it was disastrous really because all we've ended up with is two polarized sides we've got luke johnson and dawn Airy saying yes you know it can potentially be a, a, a private organization well of course they would say that they you know they come from the a commercial world and then we've got john snow who's been part of channel four and you know works for part of channel four the channel four news which is never going to make a profit saying you know come on guys this is why we can create creative innovative content because we are not for profit and all we've had all week is this polarized um voices just banging at each other this is not a proper debate this is not a proper discussion of what channel 4 is how it can do things better how it can have more impact how it can move forward into this multi-channel world um, of media which we're going down and we've just focused on this narrow lens of privatization which is not the right debate to be having in my view it may come out by the at the end that privatization is the correct way forward but the debate should start with where do we want channel 4 to be in five years time and or 10 years time and how can we get there and if privatization is the right route then let's look at that but let's start with the right debate and let's frame that debate and let's not just think of this as an easy billion pounds into the government coffers because really a billion pounds is going to make very little difference 
I agree entirely with you. I mean, look at it from the buyer's point of view as well. I mean, one of the things, as you rightly point out, the reasons why Channel 4 is such a distinct and unique uh, channel in the marketplace is because it is that not-for-profit. I mean, why would someone buy it if they're going to do a kind of Richard Desmond asset strip, move them to cheaper offices? They're, they're going to lose the very essence of Channel 4, and then it becomes just w- one other terrestrial broadcaster. Yes, it's got a prominent number on the EPG, but other than that, it's no different from you know ITV3 at that point, surely. Exactly. I, I think... I think there is a debate going on at the moment about how broadcasting and, you know, there's all the debate going on around the BBC. And one of the things that we that we seem to be missing in this debate is that this is a, this is a diamond in uh, in the crown jewels, in the British crown jewels. These, these are, you know, we, we value the NHS. We have huge conversations about how important the NHS is. And the prime minister constantly talks about wanting to stand by the NHS and, and protect the NHS. And yet it seems to me that the BBC is almost, and, and not just the BBC, Channel 4 too, about the, the creative content that comes out of this country. We are some of the best broadcasters. We are, we have some of the strongest media in the world. And, you know, our content is shown across many, many channels. The BBC has a commercial arm, which has a revenue of a billion pounds um, because our content is so good. And we need to start valuing what we have created and start looking at it as a jewel in the crown and working out how we can optimise that value and how we can use that value to help protect British PLC, you know, or British creativity in the world and make make that output important to us as a whole rather than just how how can we as taxpayers save ourselves a couple of hundred million pounds here. I mean, Aidan, it does seem to me that quite apart from the rights and wrongs of how the channel would be funded, the government are looking at this from a kind of easy billion point of view. I mean, and, and there might not be any shame in that if you, if you accept the government's position that we're short of money and we need to do down the deficit. C- can you blame them for wanting to kind of sell off the, uh, the family media silver, as it were, to get that billion quid into the exchequer? I'd just say, first of all, going back to the previous point, I'm certainly not saying for sure that the individual involved in revealing this detail about Channel 4 did so anything other than inadvertently. I was just making a, Absolutely. Uh, a suspicion well, we, we about pre- previous Absolutely. cases. Um, but uh, as, as Rachel said, um, one billion, I could see that being used as an argument for going forward with this. But if that was the only justification giving, I think it might come under a, a lot of uh, scepticism as, as well. And uh, I mean, it, it's the government document involved did suggest the government was looking at options of extracting extra, extra value from Channel 4, you know, whether that involves uh, a wholesale sell-off. Um, I think, though, that it would certainly ignite a, a, a very prominent media firestorm of protest and, 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 um, and, and, and criticism as well, in the, in the same way that the BBC does, where it... Where it um, where it floats the idea of closing down certain channels or networks. And the the government, having been unable to press forward um, at all, really, uh, when it was a coalition in terms of even floating the idea of a Channel 4 uh, privatisation, is also gearing up for a battle on another front with the BBC as well. So in terms of um, charter renewal, yes, e- exactly, and and uh, and and the well, the, you know, the future governance and uh, of, of the BBC. So Channel Four, might, they might go all guns blazing and think, well, let's you know, let's let's do uh, to take on um, two public sector broadcasting um, 
behemoths in in one go. But I think they they would, having opened this debate now, would will find a lot of complications. E- even if there will be like with the raw mail sell off, lots of people who potentially are in line to make a lot of money, whether in uh, consultancy fees or accountancy fees or um, but, or future uh, future purchases. But, I mean, if you, as, again, just to take the point that I dealt with Rachel there, in terms of um, the buyer, you know, given that ITV is not doing particularly well get based on its historic revenues, you know, why would anyone want to create a commercial channel? It's just going to end up in a... Is it going to be in, end up in another Channel 5? I think it would be complicated even more that, that, that's, that surely the government would either feel compelled themselves or come under pressure to build in certain safeguards to set set down conditions to, if not entirely upholding the current uh, remit that Channel 4 has, engaging different audiences to BBC One or or ITV. That would be a pressure on the government, and potentially that might drive down the price that any potential buyers would want to to pay if if they felt restricted in that way. We've seen with ITV, you know, constantly trying to water down the, the restrictions they have in terms of setting down how many hours of children's television or religious programming they have to uh, to provide. So it, it's it's a it's a great asset to um, to eye up, but I think that the sale would probably prove very complicated for both the government and for potential investors. I mean, Rachel, just on the final point on this, do you think the government actually gets broadcast media? Because clearly when Jeremy Hunt was Culture Secretary, he was enthusiastic about London Live. You know, New York's got 20 gazillion channels based around New York. Why can't London have one? Well, they're struggling, to say the least, as you might imagine. And, you know, the government has historically sold off certain aspects of the country's family silver, which many people have then said have been at an undervalue. The Royal Mail springs to mind. Do you think that this is something that they should just move on from? It's a good question. Does the government get get the broadcast media? Um, and I think we are in danger of debating this subject in a small bubble of the media and and Westminster. Um, I think if you actually go and ask people on the street, and we saw this with um, with BBC um, Radio Six, that if you actually go and ask just the general person on the street, they are not interested in this debate at all. They use the BBC. They watch Channel 4. They loved Big Brother. They watch Gogglebox. You know, th- these are the things that they're interested in. And if you if you ask them whether that should be state-owned and whether it's right that we we contribute £200 million to the coffers of of um, Channel 4, I just don't think they would be, they would care. They couldn't give a monkey. No, I actually <laughs> genuinely don't think that they care about that. I think it is it is a debate that is happening in a small bubble of key media commentators and and Westminster. I'll just add, actually, um, Tony Benn once said broadcasting is too important to leave to the broadcasters. So maybe that's um, <laughs> what uh, a, a future administration might um, might take a more hands on rather than sell off kind of approach. And finally, many say they're essential for building up a community of readers, but news websites are starting to close their comment sections. Online magazines like The Daily Dot and The Verge say moderating their comment sections has become an expensive and full-time job. On top of that, Canadian media brand Sun News say that many people only use online comments to make negative and even malicious personal attacks, pointing out that their readers can still discuss their articles on social media sites. Rachel, do you think this is the beginning of the end for online comments? I don't think it's the beginning of the end, no. I think that online comments are an important part of um, most 
media, online media, and I think they will continue. I think what is happening is that there's a realisation that comment and um, debate often happens outside just the little comments at the bottom of articles that a lot of it these days actually happens on Facebook it happens on Twitter it you know it happens on other online forum I think that media organizations are actually starting to look at this whole comment area and try and work out how to get hold of it and how best to use it and the the newspapers and uh, the the online media that have closed their comments they all tended to have said we've closed it while we work out what the right forum is and I think that's what's going on I think there's a lot of discussion and debate about what is the right forum and how to involve all areas of areas of comment and you know a lot of the comments that you do get at the bottom of articles are quite negative I read the comments underneath the story about Channel 4 News um, possible privatisation just to see what people were thinking about before before coming and talking on this because there is still quite a lot of comment on those stories and you do get a different perspective. I don't think it's going to disappear. I think it will remain a really important part. Apart from anything else, online media organisations are about content. This is a, this is content. Um, they would almost be shooting themselves in the foot if they say, right, we're not going to have this area of content. This is engagement with their readers, which is what online advertisers want. It is proof, if they're getting a 1,000 comments or 2,000 comments on an article, that people are not just reading it, thinking about it, getting to the bottom of it and engaging with it. That's brilliant analytics that you can hand on to your revenue stream. So, no, I don't think it's going to disappear. Aidan, Metro is an incredibly popular newspaper. Do you do you read the comments under your own articles? I know quite a few journalists that wouldn't dare. Well, Metro is slightly different actually at the moment because Me- Metro, the newspaper which I write for, is is as of last year, the online um, site is entirely separate. It was subsumed by Mail Online, and so that it's a, a different team. It used to be the case that the you know the stories we'd publish in the paper would would then get um transposed onto the website that's no longer the case uh, i have in the past though what journalist isn't curious to to see what people are saying about your story if they're saying anything about your story at all and uh, and so that, often, it, often that's more upsetting if yeah. no one is you know the only thing worse than being talked about is not exactly, being talked about exactly and heaven forbid that newspapers or websites would ever print a uh, story or a column that um, they thought might get some negative feedback. But most columnists have written an article about online comments, haven't they? I mean, I'm thinking of Dan Hodges and David Aronovich and Owen Jones, where they actually, and Andrew Ronsley memorably wrote a piece where he said, you know, I I was taught never to read below the line, but uh, when you do, you know, (laughs) the horror that they were engaging. I mean, do you take Rachel's point there that, that, that there is a kind of predominantly negative vibe going on? Of course, I mean that—that's the reaction, the real element to most people have. Uh, I mean, it, it's why sites like TripAdvisor, or, or you know, I'm always interested in reading reviews of products I'm thinking of buying online, or hotels I'm thinking of checking into. But human nature suggests that you're going to be more motivated to take the time to write something if you have a strong negative reaction to it. But I don't think that's. Um, necessarily you can then write it off as oh it's just mad people below the line i mean i think it's people who have taken the time to sometimes read your piece you want to have people responding spending time on your site uh, interacting with you and giving your thoughts which often can be not just uh you know what what's written off as trolling or, or mindless abuse but also can be very insightful i mean if i'm writing if i'm reading a 
particularly an opinion piece on on, on a website, uh, you know, I can find myself being very impressionable and and thinking, oh, that's you know, that I'll go along with that. But then always make sure to read some of the comments underneath because often people. You know, with expertise we'll of their own. The uh, well, expertise of their own. We'll mm. we'll offer different points, or, or at least, even if you don't agree with what they're saying, a, a, a different side to it. Because in the past, before the the internet, you know, people would respond or discuss things, and it would go no further than say a table around a pub. I mean, Rachel, do you think that um, people self-manage now when they look at comments? Because I, I, I do sometimes peek below the line, and if, if, it, if it just even looks on the screen that, that it might be a bit ranty or a bit long, I'll just skim it. I, I prefer the kind of pithy challenges, really, and sometimes if I've ever been tempted to comment myself, I always make extra effort to make sure that it's short readers will edit themselves they decide what they're going to read and because of the because we have the internet it's so much easier now to pick and choose what you want to read you don't just have to read the story in in the times the paper you get every morning you could you know, you can flick a flick about and you'll let, end up finding that you're reading lots of sources to get your news including the below the line comment but it's very easy and very quick to sort of see if it's just a load of old rants or actually whether there is a, a proper debate going on and it does depend on the publication too you know if there's been three thousand comments on one story they are inevitably going to be saying the same thing so mm. you know do you really need to bother going and reading them often you read one or two and you've got the general gist or you've been on twitter and you've got the general gist and so, people are voting now of course because you can actually vote on what the best comments are so nowadays you know the the, the newspaper will prioritize those comments that have been favorited the most yeah the same as twitter you know, it sort of pushes it pushes it up yeah so i mean I, I think that goes back to your initial question is this the beginning of the end for comment i don't think it is i think it's more just dis- a discussion that's going on in the media and particularly starting out in the in the u.s media about how can we make this a better engagement how can we make this work better rather than just this sort of endless rant of people just writing a lot of negative comments all on the same theme essentially just said it in a slightly different way there's a growing body of people that read the below the line comments for sport, as it were. That it's a le- it's becoming a leisure activity where people won't even watch the YouTube video, or they'll go to a particular Daily Mail article where someone's made a mistake, and they won't even read the article, but they'll go straight to the comments because some people can actually be quite witty, uh, you know, in the, whilst also becoming quite hurtful, of course. Uh, I mean, Aidan, have you have you seen any of that evidence of that on articles you've written? Well, I was just going to say, some, sometimes particularly with sites such as the Daily Mail's one way where you can give a green upwards tick or a red downwards one sometimes it is, it can be quite entertaining it's to, the to wittier click, ones that to, get the to, the to click to, well, or 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 even the opposite click on the the the, uh, the tab that says bring up the worst rated ones first and see what what's really getting people uh, angry you know in 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 their responses um but also on on i as i say with the metro site being the way it is the the, the feedback I might get more negative is, is I know on Twitter, if if someone has felt particularly riled about a story, Googled my name, found the way to contact me is by adding me on Twitter. And, and, and you, th- you know, so at least they've... Do you get many gone. of those? Do you get many people approach you in, in that way? Uh, I wouldn't say many, but, but certainly, a, a, you know, a, a hefty number, uh, you know, particularly at, at um, you know, at, at, at certain points, there'll suddenly be a, a spike and are they largely in agreement? Or is it congratulatory? Is it hostile? Is it irritable? It's a mix. You remember the hostile ones yeah. more, don't you? You but, do, don't uh, you? But uh, that's what people feel, then, then fine. 
Guys, we're going to have to leave it there because we've run out of metaphorical tape. But uh, Rachel, could you tell us about the Bureau of Investigative Journalism? What do you guys do? Tell us how we can follow your work. Plug first. You can get to any of our stories at thebureauinvestigates.com or tbij.com. Both go to the same site. Um, Most of our stories, uh, the vast majority of stories are always co-published. So we have stories that are published in The Guardian, The Independent, um, Daily Mail. We work on very long-term investigations Stories that take six months, sometimes a year. They tend to be in areas where um, the wider media isn't looking, um, and we tr- they're all evidence based. So a lot of it is about building up evidence that we can then put into the hands of policymakers and decision makers and try and, and make an impact, and try and highlight the wrong but get the wrong right into. How does it work in terms of your, your media partnerships? Do you do you have a, a, an idea for an investigation, and then find a partner, or do you kind of do the investigation and then sell it to sell the end result, as it were? Um, we tend to do the work first, and then we'll go and work with we'll go and co-partner with a platform that we feel is the most appropriate for. So that you offer it to them story. as a completed investigation, uh, not well, as, as a completed piece of as uh, work in terms of the investigation, but then um, we will work with the media partner that we choose to actually turn that. Into into a story. So if we decide it's a broadcastable story, we'll go and work with an independent production company to turn mm. it into a, a, a piece of TV. If we think it's radio, we'll go to, a, again, an independent production company. If we think it's um, a much better told in a print pace, we'll go to a newspaper and we'll go and work with a journalist there who will help um, to actually write the story, get the comment. Um, you know, we're a small organisation, so trying to get top comment or a right to reply looked at properly and taken seriously sometimes it's much easier to be able to say well actually we're working with the guardian on this and then people will um tend to engage how do people follow you on twitter at tbij and are you posting on twitter can people i follow am you? at ra oldroid which is o-l-d-r-o-y-d aiden tell us about your work how do people follow you on twitter how do they read your writing well, by picking up the paper, generally, and I think most people, uh, most, most, yes, most people come across it every so often. Uh, you know, it's a great paper. So, how do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, at Aidenrad, so A I D A N R A D. Thank you very much, guys, for coming on. For those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W. R. Blanchard. And you can also go to the Media Focus Twitter, which is media underscore focus underscore UK, for breaking media news every day. Uh, and that's curated by Hannah Thompson. And you can also go to mediafocus.org.uk and leave your email address in the box and receive a shiny update once a fortnight, letting you know when the new podcast is out. But that's it for now. Thank you ever so much for listening. My name's Paul Blanchard. The associate producer was John Greenway. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production.